Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the Lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? There have been some things that I've encountered recently that have just blown my mind and made me realize that our culture is changing in ways that we might not even be aware of it. So let me just start with a couple things that got my attention recently. One is this. In 2011, Japan sold more diapers to adults than kids. Where do you get your adult diapers from, Keith? <laughs> I'm close to needing them, but I'm not quite there not yet. Not quite there, okay. Not quite there yet. But, you know, when you think of a diaper, you think of you're having kids, pampers, right? You uh-huh. have all these years, your kids are in diapers, but they sold more to adults every year since 2011. That's because their fertility rate is decreasing. They're having fewer children than there are elderly inside of Japan's population. It's not just that robots are beginning to take care of elderly people. In Japan, in Italy, there's all of these interesting stories of, and they kind of look goofy. It's like these tiny little humanoid robots that are helping, you know, take care of people, helping to connect with people. They tell them stories. They give them exercises to do. It's kind of wild, but it's because there isn't enough of a younger population to take care of the elderly that now we're beginning to like McDonald'sify it and bring robots in to do the work because we have so many elderly people and so few working age people. And what I read is that the next step in making these robots better is that they would have facial empathy because there's something about a human relationship that you still want that dynamic, but the robot can't quite give it to you. But then on the other end of that, they're bringing robots in to just be friends with the elderly person, not to care for them, but just to have some sort of relationship with them because they don't have grandkids to play that role. So here's another statistic that blows my mind. There has been a dramatic shift in the age of a woman's first marriage. Now, I don't know why demographers keep track of a woman's age versus a man's age. I don't know. I'm sure there's a Well, the same thing will happen with fertility. They think there's some things that women control for that if you measure men, it's different. But let's keep going. Yeah, I don't quite get it. But nonetheless, here's the stat. Between 1880 and 1980, so that's 100 years, the average age of a woman's first marriage ranged between the age of 20 and 22. So it kind of went back and forth between those two numbers for 100 years. Then in 1990, it's 23.9. So almost 24 years old when a woman has her first marriage. 2000, 25.1. 2010, 26.1. 2020, 28.6. So in a matter of what, between 1990 and how good is Keith's math? That's 30 years. (laughs) (laughs) My math is so bad. Anyway, between 1980 and 2020, so 40 40 years, 40 years, yours are getting better, (laughs) Mr. Private School. It has. You started with 1990. I know, I know. My numbers are right. But anyway, it's a dramatic shift in our culture when people get married. So from 22 to 29, but your point was before 1980, for 100 years, that number held relatively steady. And we're not evaluating this. We're just pointing out 
Things are changing. Another interesting example, Elizabeth Brunig on Mother's Day of 2021 in the New York Times, she talks about how she doesn't regret having children at age 25, which apparently set some people crazy because another author over at the New York Times, I went back and reread these, began looking for stories of people who regret having children. Now, what parent in their right mind writes an article that they know their child might one day read <laughs> about why they regretted having children? Specifically, she wanted people to say why they regretted having children maybe at a younger age or why they regretted having as many children as they had, but still she wanted people to share their regret. Elizabeth Brunig is a Catholic, a kind of a traditional Catholic, and she is at the Atlantic now, but she is a fantastic writer. And who would have thought that just talking about how she had kids at age 25 would set off such a negative response, but in her circles that she runs in, elite education, New York City, big city, it just made people angry. They don't want to hear that having kids at a young age is good for a woman or the women are happy with it. Let's do religion. 25 years ago, 62% of Americans called religion very important, and that's down to 39%. But more germane to our conversation today, having children. 60% of Americans said having children was very important. Today, only 25% of Americans think having children is very important. One thing did grow, though, money. Back 25 years ago, 30% of Americans said it was very important to have more money, and that number has risen to 42%. So we are now in a culture where we care more about cash than children. We care more about consumerism than kids. Our aspirations, what we value, is more oriented around our stuff than procreation than having families and growing families. That's a pretty wild shift in 25 years. Yeah, this Wall Street Journal poll that Patrick is talking about is something I think we're going to refer to quite a bit over the next few years because it is showing a rapid change in how we think about things that are important to us. And everything declined. Everything that you would have thought was important 25 years ago has declined except money. And I don't know if it fits with your experience, but it kind of fits with mine, right? People care more about getting ahead than just about anything else. And I think it reflects the decline in trust in our institutions and a lack of kind of respect for our country and religion and all that. But maybe that's it in a nutshell. What we want to talk about today is that there has been a rapid decline in the number of people who want to have kids. At the same time, there's a lot of people who want to make money and think that's maybe one of the most important things in their life. Yeah. Let me give a quick billboard of today's conversation. We were just starting with interesting things that we're seeing. Like Keith just said, we are seeing fewer marriages, people getting married later in life and having less kids. And it's that last one, having less kids, that we really want to focus on. So we'll open up by just talking about what's happening with fertility in the United States and abroad. And then we're going to ask the question, what's the impact of lower fertility rates? What's the economic impact? What's the cultural impact? And then maybe more importantly, we want to ask as Christians, what should we think about having children? Where should we value having children in our life? Well, what's a kingdom vision of having children? And is that different than what we're seeing in our cultural moment? Yeah. And let's emphasize here, Patrick, that we're not talking about individual stories here. We're mm. not talking about whether you should have more kids or whether you should be married. We're not talking about you as a person or any specific person out there. We're talking about a large cultural trend and shift and how that affects our country, how it affects the world, how it affects us as Christians and how we think and operate within our world. Because we're going to make the point that we have been discipled more by our culture than we have by the Bible when it comes to having kids. 
But if you listen to this episode as if we are judging you and your choices, well, you're going to miss our point and you're just going to hate us. So understand <laughs> that's not our goal here. Can I add a thought there? Because I tweeted about some of this this morning just to see what people would say, how they'd respond. And one of the pushbacks I got from people was along this line. They say, well, actually, Christians have a history of emphasizing family as the pinnacle of faith, as the most important thing. And what's difficult for me, and I think it's kind of the same for you, Keith, I didn't grow up in evangelicalism. I didn't grow up in these bizarro subcultures. And so there's a lot of things where people will say that to me and I go, I've just never seen that, right? I've basically been in one church my whole life and we do not emphasize family as the pinnacle of Christian existence. So, you know, I've never read Dobson. I don't know what these background stories are, but if you're reading us through the lens of evangelical culture, remember who's talking, two guys who didn't grow up in it. That's not our interest. We're not fighting that fight. We're trying to talk about cultural trends. That's what we do on this podcast. So let's hop in with some not so fun facts. Let's set the stage with this. I learned a few years ago that the replacement rate is a woman. Again, I don't know why we track women instead of men, but nonetheless, a woman having 2.1 children. In other words, if every woman in a society has 2.1 children, then the total population will remain constant. And that number, 2.1, is called the total fertility rate. And what we've seen over time is that rate has been fluctuating a little bit, but now in the last, say, 50 years or so, it has been declining rapidly. Yeah, it has. So just to reiterate that, if the number's over 2.1, your population grows. If the number's under 2.1, your population begins to shrink and decline. And historically, usually around recessions, fertility rates have dropped, but normally they bounce back. So 2008 was our our last big recession. The problem is it never rebounded. With the exception of North Dakota, every state in the U.S. has had a significant drop in fertility. National fertility is down 15.9% in just the last 10 years, and the national average is below that replacement rate. We're now at 1.6 children per woman, with only one state at 2.0. There's only one state in the United States, and it's still not at the replacement rate. So then you might ask, well, what's the big deal? Well, we're going to get into that, but here's one small example of it is if you have less children, you're going to need less public schools. You're going to need less elementary schools. And of course, that would follow all the way up. It also means you'll need less teachers and people who are in the teaching profession will perhaps be out of a job. So just on a local level, it really matters how many kids a community is having. Yeah. Back when I was in college, it was kind of assumed that if you got an education degree, you'd be able to find a job. But you have to stop and think districts right now across the country are planning for around a 10% drop in enrollment in the next 10 years. 10% less kids means that there's going to be lots of experienced teachers on the market looking for jobs competing against students who are coming out of education schools. That's a significant thing. I mean, if my kid was going into education, I'd say, hey, you might want to pause because this is going to be a hard time to be a teacher. And this isn't just happening in the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon, or at least in large parts of the world. If you go and find the total fertility rate, again, 2.1 per woman is the number you need to keep the population constant. If you go out there and look, what you find is that in Africa, it is greater than 2.1. In fact, 41 of the top 50 countries with the highest total fertility rates are in Africa. Europe is declining quickly. There are only a couple of countries in Europe that are even close to 2.1. Italy is the lowest, and it is running, I think, about 1.2, but the lowest in the world is South Korea. It's total fertility rate is 1.1. So South Korea is shrinking, but so is much of Europe. So is the United States population. 
Yeah, and it's actually really interesting once you start getting into the data, because even in Europe, the populations that are keeping fertility growth at higher rates are typically refugee populations, non-European populations that are having more kids. And so Europe and America are all about to become a lot less white as a result of this fertility rate, which someone's going to tell you that is me being concerned over how many white. That's not my concern in the least. What I'm trying to say is that there's something in particular that's happening amongst white people where we are seeing fertility rates decline, which is interesting to observe and talk about. Well, another example of the cultural shift that we're going to point out as we go on. Not only is it a decline in students entering elementary school, but it's also something like a country, if they want to keep their economy going, they're going to have to say yes to more and more immigration, which is going to change a culture. Again, we're not saying good or bad. We're just observing that that is part of what happens when you don't have children. Yeah, I mean, ironically, one of the reasons I am so pro-immigration is because I believe that having a population grow, well, we've just seen historically, that's what grows your GDP. It's what makes for a stable nation over time. And if we aren't having children, the best way to grow our population is, dun-dun-dun, immigration. You want to bring in more immigrants because that's the only way that your population size is going to grow, which is why I'm very pro-immigration. I'm also saying this because I'm afraid someone's going to hear what I said a moment ago and think I'm doing some sort of great replacement theory nonsense. <laughs> it does sound like, it does kind of sound like it. You can sound like it, except that's not what we're communicating here, which is why I had to go outside of our notes and say why I'm pro-immigration <laughs> just to avoid you know someone lumping me into that category because that's crazy. Let's keep going. Okay, so back to the main theme. Fertility rates are dropping, and that's changing parenting. Yeah, if you have less kids, what that means is you as a parent have more time to spend on each child. And so what you see is parents who are trying to be like a gourmet chef. They're driving their kids all over town, signing up for all kinds of activities. They're planning these great vacations. They've got tutors. They've got somebody teaching them piano and violin. And the parent starts feeling like they have to attend every event their kid is in. So what happens is that with less kids, there's hyper-focused on providing this great environment for each child. And then parents feel exhausted and they go, well, I don't know how anybody has more kids. Well, here's the deal. When you have three or four or five or six or seven kids, you don't feel like you have to play all those roles. It's when you have less kids that you feel more pressure and then you feel exhausted by the whole thing. I love hearing that because I feel personally convicted. We have two kids. I think we're done with two kids. So I guess we're not even at replacement rate. <laughs> Iris is a 1.1. She's so much energy. So she gets us over the hump. But I do think there's some truth in what you were saying, that when you have more time to focus on kids, you expect to be able to replicate that across the board. And I have friends who have four or five kids, and of course, they can't do that. Interestingly, sometimes they're more intentional about how they do it than I am because they have less time for each kid. But that's a sidebar. So let's change to talk about how parental priorities for kids are changing. There was a study that asked parents to rate different topics, different values on a scale of very important at the highest and not too important at the bottom. And unsurprisingly, 88% of parents, they prioritized financial independence and an enjoyable career as one of the most important things for their kids' future. 88% of parents, that's what they want. I want you to be financially independent. I want you to enjoy your job. 41% said that having a college degree was very important, which is actually a pretty high number when you think about the amount of people who actually have college degrees in our country. But here's where it gets crazy. Only 20% of parents said getting married was very important. Only 20%. And only 21% said that having kids was very important. So getting a job, going to college, having a great vocation, those are all incredibly, incredibly important to a lot of parents. But getting married and having kids, meh. 
So this is what their parents want for their children. Because yeah. I'm still trying to get my mind around it. Because I have... it doesn't mean they don't want their kids. It's just saying they don't rank it as highly, right? Because they had to put these in a ranked order. And so at the end of the day, I'd rather my kid to have financial independence and a great job than I would have them be married or have kids. I think that's more important, I would think the parent would say, for their happiness than getting married and having kids. Now, we're going to get into why that's actually a really stupid take. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we're putting our cards on well, the table. I just, the, uh, that way, I have the data to prove it, the, so I'll put my cards on the table the, there. But isn't that interesting? Well, so here's what I find personally interesting is we have four kids in their 20s, and our youngest is getting ready to turn 21, and he wanted to propose to his girlfriend. Now, a lot of people would hear their 20-year-olds a junior going to have one more year of college and then grad school probably for him and for her too. She's super sharp. And they would say, no, you need to wait until after you get out of college and even better out of grad school. And, you know, our reaction was, great. Absolutely. We think she's fantastic. You're mature enough. You're 20, getting ready to be 21. We'd love for you to get married. And so they are getting married in a few months and we're excited about it. But what you're telling me is that most people in the country would say, whoa, pump the brakes on that. Don't get married because that's going to slow down your education and your career advancement. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, 46% of parents said that getting married and having kids was not too important. So they actually ranked it at the very bottom of the scale of importance. Yeah, it's just not that important. Now, I called it a stupid take earlier because I, sorry to anyone who agreed. I wasn't trying to be mean. Well, we'll get into it in a second, but you are very abnormal. In fact, our listeners should know, Keith has a track record of somehow getting people in college to get married before they graduate. So we could get back onto that later. But let's move on to a different question. Why has there been such a tremendous drop in fertility? Remember, America is well under the replacement rate of 2.0 children per woman. We're at 1.6. That's the average. And we've had a 15 0.9% drop in the last 10 years, and it is continually, steadily dropping over time. But let's expand it even bigger. Over the last 50 years, the marriage rate, and marriage rates correlate to having children, as it turns out, <laughs> that that rate has dropped by nearly 60%. So 60% fewer people are getting married today than just 50 years ago. Well, we had already talked earlier about how the average age of your first marriage is going up. People are getting married less often and they're getting married older. And of course, there's less time to have children in those you know, biological childbearing years if you get married later. Uh, so marriage used to be kind of on the early step of becoming an adult. You know, you get married, you gain your career after that. But now it's kind of the last step. Like you said, you go to grad school, you maybe get your job, pay off some of your education debt, and then get married, which is a whole new way of thinking about it. So with the decline of marriage, you would expect to be a decline in fertility rate. But here's something that I think is super interesting, is that women say that they are not having as many children as they want to have. All right. So this is really important. They will give you a number in these survey results. They'll give you a number of the number of kids they want to have. And then you check and see how many they actually have. And there is a gap. They want more. So for example, in this one, I think I found this in the U.S. Adult Sexual Behaviors and Attitudes Survey. And this is surveying women between the ages of 18 and 74. Those who want no or fewer children. So they don't want kids or they want fewer kids than they have, 29%. Those who are happy with the number of children they have, 34%. Those who want more children than they have, 37%. So this kind of goes back to the Elizabeth Brunig. I'm on her side in this. And that is I don't really hear people saying, I wish I had fewer kids. I do hear people saying, 
you know, I wish we hadn't stopped as early as we did. I think we could have done a little bit more. I get it. You feel overwhelmed in the moment, or maybe there's personal reasons or health reasons or what have you. But I think women are saying we want more kids, at least according to the survey results, than we currently have. So it's not as if we are, as a culture, trying to force people to do something they don't want to do. That's really important. We're not trying to coerce someone. We're just trying to help them do what they say they already want to do. Uh, That's a really interesting point. On the one hand, fertility rates are dropping. On the other hand, we're not having as many kids, or at least women aren't having as many kids as they would like. So that's an interesting conversation. At the exact same time, if you look at high schoolers and their interest in marriage, the vast majority, something like 70, 75%, depending on the year of high schoolers, and this number hasn't changed since the 70s, they hope to be married one day. The vast majority of high schoolers want to get married. However, today, which again, marriage is often the first step to having children, today that number is reducing. In in 1990, 67% of Americans between the ages of 25 to 34 were living with a spouse. That's a lot of the American population. 29% were unpartnered. In 2019, only 53% of Americans live with a spouse, and 38% are unpartnered. So like you just said a second ago, fertility rate's declining, but we want to have more kids. It turns out the same thing's true of marriage. A lot of people, at least when they're teenagers, they want to get married, but fewer people are getting married, and more people are living unpartnered. That means often living alone or living with friends. Okay, so if you've gotten kind of lost in all the statistics out there and all the percentages we've thrown at you, we're done with that. And we <laughs> we're w- out of the numbers. <laughs> well, I mean, when I listen to things, sometimes it's hard for me to wrap my head around all the numbers as they're coming at me. Yeah. But we just want to ask, you know, is this a big deal or not? How should we as Christians think about this? And to kind of keep developing this story that explains how we got to this position that we're in of having fewer kids than ever, I think at least part of that story is around around a guy named Paul Ehrlich, who in 1968, he wrote what turned out to be a very influential book called The Population Bomb. And in The Population Bomb, what Paul Ehrlich argued is that we have too many people on earth and that our population is growing too rapidly, that we're not going to be able to produce food for all these people. We're not going to provide health care for all these people, jobs for all these people. And it was very much a doomsday approach to population increasing. And it was kind of the end of the world is coming. And this wasn't some kind of crackpot. He was on Johnny Carson, who, if you're not familiar with him, was kind of the original late night person that preceded David Letterman and Jay Leno and all of them. He was the guy they all looked up to and wanted to be like. He was on Johnny Carson's show 20 times talking about how the world is coming to end. We have too many people. And that really became a big part of the story that our population was going to exceed what our world could provide for. Now, contrast that. That title of the book, Population Bomb, with a book that came out by a guy named Jonathan Last, What to Expect When No One is Expecting. You know, you've seen that book, the pregnancy book, What to Expect. When you're expecting. Oh, that's what it's called. (laughs) What to Expect When You're Expecting, right? That a lot of pregnant women buy to help them through the stages of pregnancy and all that, right? But he plays off that, What to Expect When No One's Expecting. And he's arguing, look, in that book, we don't have a population crisis. Well, maybe that's wrong. We do have a population crisis. It's not that we have too many kids or too many people. It's that we have too few kids, too few people. So one more thing on this is that Ezra Klein, who was at the New York Times, he started Vox. He's been everywhere, Washington Post. I like listening to him. And the way he said in one of his podcasts, and this is also an article that he wrote in the New York Times, he said that one of the questions he gets asked the most after he gives a presentation somewhere is, is it wrong for me to have children given the climate catastrophe that we're about to undergo? 
So here is Ezra Klein, who is a person who's talked a lot about the climate and the danger the climate is in, and he sincerely believes that. And yet he's realizing that people have drawn the wrong conclusion, and that is they shouldn't have kids. But now Ezra Klein has kids, so he's trying to explain to people how, no, you can still keep having children, even though we are in a situation with our climate that is, you know, a little bit dangerous. So it's the same kind of thinking of the population bomb. What it sees is, is people as the problem. And if you think people is the problem, then you start asking the question, should I bring more people into the world or not? Yeah. So if the question is, should we care about decreasing fertility rates? Should we care about lowering marriage rates? There are some people who are going to argue, no, we shouldn't care. This is great news. It's good news that we have lower fertility rates. It's not a problem that people are getting married less. And what we want to argue is that actually all of the evidence points in the exact opposite direction. So let's just start with mental health in general and marriage. According to multiple studies, but one that I'm referencing here, married people have more economic security, more social and emotional support, greater linkages to social networks, and that creates a greater sense of social control. This means that married people have lower levels of mental health issues, lower rates of disease, addiction, and criminality, and and longer life expectancy. Now, what some people will respond to me with this, they'll say, well, that's because happier, wealthier people are just more likely to get married, and they're also the people who are likely to have all those positive mental health and life outcomes. But there's been a study that's proved that's probably not the case. So the study says that people who are married and they're controlling, I guess, for economic factors, are happier? Yeah, they're controlling for both wealth and happiness. So here's what happened. It was a study. It was looking at nurses who were working in the 80s and 90s. And the study began with exclusively nurses who weren't married. And they were measuring those nurses' level of wealth and their level of happiness before they got married to determine, does that make you more likely to get married? And is that the thing that actually causes you to have all these positive mental health outcomes? As it turns out, it's not happier people that get married. It turns out that getting married makes you happier. Now, you have to rule out divorce, and they point this out, that divorces can be terrible for your mental health. But in general, across the board, getting married makes you happier. And as it turns out, it makes you wealthier as well. The women who got married had a 35% lower chance of death for any reason than the woman who didn't get married. They had lower risk of cardiovascular disease, less depression, less loneliness, more happiness, more optimism, and a greater sense of purpose and hope. Now, we can pull out all this research. Marriage is good for you. You don't have to believe what the Bible says about marriage or anything. Marriage is good for you. It produces positive mental health outcomes. And again, marriage is usually the first step towards having children. Remember that book we read called Coming Apart by Charles Murray? It's so interesting, but it kind of presents two different Americas. And one America is still getting married. In the other America, the marriage rates are declining. And it kind of fits exactly with that study you just talked about with those nurses. And you might not guess it, but the part of America that's still getting married are the part that are educated and wealthier. And the part of America that's not getting married, it's kind of a cycle. It just continues itself and builds on itself so that the people who aren't getting married find themselves more and more in economic inequality. So the lack of marriage is driving economic inequality that I think all of us are rightly concerned about. Well, and one of the ironies he points out is that it's often coming from these elite, affluent, educated circles is the idea that marriage isn't good for you or that marriage is something to be avoided or that marriage is something that doesn't really matter. 
matter. But they're not drinking their own Kool-Aid. They're living by a different set of rules. But who is drinking their Kool-Aid? Well, it tends to be people who are coming from more impoverished backgrounds. And like you just said, unfortunately, if you don't get married, if you don't enter into a culture of marriage, you are reduplicating or you're compounding some of the problems that already exist just because you have less to start with. Yeah, so the elites have a message that the traditional family isn't good, it's restrictive or whatever, but they still participate in traditional family structures, at least mostly. Again, we're not talking about individuals. We're talking about trends. Trends, right. So let's transition to talk about fertility. And we're not going to talk about mental health outcomes of parents. And that's not going to be our focus, again, because we're talking in, in broad trends. Although there's plenty of research around that that shows that actually being a parent in general makes you slightly more happy. Being happy is not a good reason to have a kid, by the way. <laughs> I feel like I need to say that. The more important part that we want to discuss is how fertility rates affect nations, how they affect us writ large. So there's so many different things we can say here. How about let's start with an economic impact. When you have a declining population, your economic well-being measured in gross domestic product, your GDP is going to decline. When that declines, then everybody has less money and you have less products, less opportunity. And so maybe you don't think the GDP declining is a big deal, but it has real impact upon your life. Just for example, you'll have less tax revenue. So that means you won't be able to spend money on roads or schools or all the social service. Or Medicare or Medicaid yeah, or SNAP the, the, or whatever these programs are that you want to spend it on. Yeah, so declining economy is a really big deal to all of us. And here's the thing is that when the family declines, then what that does is puts more of a burden on government. Right, Because the things that a family used to do for each other, now somebody has to step in and fill that role. So you might remember that ad. It was kind of a controversial ad. The that, Julia ad? Yeah, exactly what I was the thinking Obama about. Ad, yeah. The Obama runs this ad. When I say it was an ad, it was just something on the internet, right? Yeah. It wasn't I don't like think it was an ad. Television. It was like a story they told of hope. And so what you found was this little girl, Julia, who was born and takes all the way through her life. And they pulled it pretty quickly because people mocked it because government stepped in and had to provide for this person the whole life from kind of womb to tomb kind of a thing. At every stage she had needs and at every stage, you know, a bureaucrat shows up to solve the problem <laughs> for which, you know, seemed a little sad and silly at the time. But it's kind of insightful. I mean, because that's what has to happen when the family declines and you don't have people who are grandparents or you don't have grandchildren or you don't have siblings, you don't have intact families, then the government has to do that. But here's the catch. Right when tax revenues are declining, the needs for the government to provide are increasing. You have this kind of perfect storm of mess. Well, the other thing that happens is it means that you have an aging population, right? Because the baby boomers and the generation ahead of them, that is a larger population than the younger generations below them because they had fewer children. They didn't replace themselves. And so now all of a sudden millennials, Gen Z and Gen Alpha, they're going to have to bear the burden for aging parents and an aging generation. You already brought up tax revenue and social security. So that's a huge concern. But the other one is just simply there aren't enough people to care for our elderly population. And who does that burden fall on? It falls on the young. And this isn't just some sort of conservative talking point. Gavin Newsom, who's a very progressive governor of California, he was talking about their 2023 state budget. And this is what he said. He said, with rising cost of living and an already tight housing market, it could become increasingly difficult for the remaining working age Californians to support the aging population. So he's saying, hey, we have less money. And that's part of why we're having some of these housing crises because our GDP is going down because we have fewer people inside the country. And who has to take care of our aging Californians? Well, 
It's a younger generation, and we can't do it. The working age population doesn't have enough to do it. These are the consequences. And historically, over time, when you have lower levels of population, this leads to national decline. It leads to all kinds of problems. There's a fantastic book called One Billion Americans by Matthew Iglesias that explores this idea. Another great book that we just read called Disunited Nations by Peter Zayn. Both of them are exploring how fertility and immigration are, on the whole, a net positive for nations. You want high birth rates and you want high immigration because if your population is growing, your GDP is growing, and all the problems we just listed, they don't come to fruition. Yeah, so there's a double whammy that I guess you're probably tracking with, and that is that on one hand, we're having fewer kids. On the other hand, medical technology is allowing people to live longer than ever. So at the same time we have fewer children, we have people who are on Social Security or who are going to be in nursing homes or whatever, people living longer than ever, and therefore it puts people and our culture and our society and governments in kind of a double bind. So is there anything that a government can do to encourage people to have kids? And of course, they have certain things that they can use to incentivize people, right? Yeah, you have child tax credits, which, by the way, were just cut in half. Um, <laughs> so Were they really? Well, they were up from COVID. So I think it's $3,000 per child, depending on your income, in the COVID era. And the Biden administration decided to take it back to the pre-COVID. So, you know, just to be clear, but they were cut in half. It's down to $1,500 per child. Well, I know Mitt Romney proposed something about more benefits to families to try to encourage people to have kids. And I think a big part of this comes down to, do you think that the obstacle to people having kids is money, you know, and we'll probably end up talking about that before we're finished with this conversation. But there are other non-financial benefits that a society could offer people with more kids. I mean, just think about parking spots you go to at the grocery store and they have certain spots marked off with people with disabilities. Yeah. What if you had spots marked off with people with more kids, you know? And so if you bring <laughs> Young <a> families, 15 <laughs> passenger <laughs> van and you kind of get all your kids out, all 15 of them. So Keith, that's your answer to the population problem. Parking spots. <laughs> or I also read one person's proposal that everybody would say a certain number of kids would have a meeting with their senator and kind of so publicly honoring people with more kids mm. or that you might get more Social Security benefits when you retire. If you had more kids, amen. Like, well, I mean, the idea <laughs> it there makes is, logical sense. Yes, it does because you've created more children who pay into Social Security. So, therefore, maybe you should get more out of it than someone who hasn't. You didn't just create them; you invested in them. I mean, people no, forget true. having children is incredibly expensive, and we'll get into that's the reason why people are having less kids in a moment. But it is expensive, and so I always kind of joke. And again, I'm not trying to be mean, but when I meet, for example, a married couple that says, "Hey, we're never going to have children." I'm like, so you're getting all the benefits of marriage because it is good for you both on your mental health and wealth, but whose children are going to take care of you when you're old? Oh, I guess it's my kids. Now, that can sound really selfish, and I'm happy for me and my kids to help take care of other people, but you begin to see the point. I made a massive investment, and they're going to have to invest in you, but you made a choice to be self-expressive, perhaps. I want to be successful. I want to be able to do whatever I want to do. I don't want to have to worry. You know, there's some logical sense here. I'm getting ahead of ourselves. Let's keep going. Well, and then one more real quick on the ways that culture could help incentivize people to have kids is just to have work hours and workplaces that allow more flexibility for people in their jobs you know, working parents. So, you know, there's limited tools that a government has to incentivize child raising. This probably isn't an issue about government. It's probably an issue about 
culture and faith and that kind of thing. I think that's the point, because the question we ask is, why are fertility rates dropping? And we're going to get into one common answer. But if the answer is because people don't have enough money, then it does seem like maybe the government can help solve some of those problems with some of the things that you listed. I think the only thing the government really can do that might actually have a serious impact on our population is actually immigration, which I already said earlier. If we allow for more immigration, our population size will grow and it will solve some of those big problems that we talked about earlier in terms of GDP and who's caring for who. But let's get back to the fertility question. Why is this happening? Common answer is this. Families don't have enough money. They don't have enough money to support a family. So I posted about this on Twitter and immediately, I think I got five or six comments from people saying, hey, I don't like what you're saying about we need to rethink children and maybe we should be having more children. And the reason why they said you're not accounting for the fact that people don't have enough money. But is that true? Well, let me just ask you this. I might be wrong here, but it seems like that the wealthier nations are the ones who are having fewer children, right? So it's Europe, it's the United States, it's South, South Korea. Korea, Japan. It's the places who are on the positive side, on the economic spectrum, that the total fertility rate is dropping. And if you go to somewhere like Africa, that's where, like I said earlier, 41 of the top 50 nations with the highest total fertility rate are located. And they don't have as much economic power as we do. So I don't quite understand that. People say it's money that's keeping me from having kids, but it's those who have the most money, they're having fewer kids. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. Let's try to say what might be true here. It is true that the Northern European welfare states, they do have slightly higher fertility rates than other European states that don't have as much welfare options. So there could be a case to be made that if the government got more involved in providing for families, people might have more kids. But it's important to say this, they still have not gotten close <laughs> to the replacement rate. And as their population ages, which it will, what happens to that welfare state? They begin to have to provide for people who cannot provide for themselves. So it creates a problem. But in general, the research Research is mixed. For example, the more education you have, this is a peer research study, the more education you have and the more wealth you have, if you're a woman, the less likely you are to have as many children. Well, you kind of understand why though, right? I mean, if you have more education, that means you've been in school longer. It means you probably have more debt. 
it means that you feel like it's part of your calling, your life ambition to use that in developing a career. Now that takes a few years to get off the ground. And then you want to pay back some of that debt before you have a kid. So all of a sudden you're 35 pretty easily, you know, 33, something like that. And biologically, it's just harder to have children. Yeah, that's true. I feel like we're going to restate this. We're not talking about you as an individual. So we're talking about trends and how people make decisions. I think that's important to remember. Here's one more example. In the Atlantic, they talked about a study done of lottery winners because the ideal way to figure out does money cause you to have more kids is to do a randomized test <laughs> across a nation and as it turns out the lottery is the perfect scenario to do this so this has been done in both sweden and the u.s and it turns out that if men win the lottery they're more likely to get married and they have slightly higher fertility rates so more money does mean you're slightly more likely to get married now the reason why though is interesting it's because women are more interested statistically in marrying men with more money so they're getting married more frequently not because they they want to be married more than they did before, but because they're more attractive partners <laughs> than they were before. But what about women? If women win the lottery, they are less likely to get married. They are more likely to get divorced and they are less likely to have children. Why is that? Well, I mean, they can't really explain why they it is. It's, no, I mean, in the article, they had a really hard time putting it together. But what we can say definitively is that more money doesn't make a significant impact on whether or not you have kids or get married for men or women. It's negative for women and it's only you know, just barely positive for men. So the answer, the reason why we have lower fertility rates is because people can't afford families. It just doesn't actually make sense on the ground. So that's the reason why I think our fertility rate isn't so much a reflection of what our government is doing or not doing. I don't think it's a reflection of do people have enough money or do they not have enough money. And I'm not saying those things are not valuable, that they shouldn't be discussed. I'm just saying I don't think that's what's driving this. I think what's driving this is culture. And if you remember in an earlier episode, Keith and I talked about how Christians, we need to see ourselves kind of like exiles living in Babylon and that we don't live in Eden and that because we live in Babylon, Babylon, our nation, our cultural environment, it shapes our values. It disciples us. It trains us to see the world, see ourselves, and make decisions in a certain way. And if you start to see Babylon as a disciple maker, you can understand why fertility might be a part of the conversation. I mean, what does Babylon train us to believe is true about having children? Uh, just to be clear, everybody outside of the Garden of Eden from the very beginning of time has lived in Babylon, a culture that we have made ourselves but is distant from God, a corrupted culture. And our culture here in America teaches us certain values that you have to acknowledge that that is true. Like, for example, America has a story about a dream life. What is the American dream? I've got the 1950s, 1960s Babylon, right? The American dream. American dream has been defined different ways by different people and different eras. But one way to define the American dream is that you get married and you move out into the suburbs and you have two kids. You live with a white picket fence. And probably only around white people if we're talking about the 50s and 60s. And sure. Part of the dream as well. Well, and now Babylon's story has shifted a little bit. I like this guy named Derek Thompson who writes in The Atlantic and he writes a lot about work and he talks specifically about workism. As religion declines, people find their identity in their work. As you walk into a room and people ask, well, what do you do? And you want to have something really good to say. Where did you go to school? You want to have an elite education. He talks about how people went from talking about jobs, then they started talking about careers, and now we start talking about callings. And the people identify with their career and their calling, their education and all that. Well, if that's what gives you status, 
that is going to run not directly counter, but it's going to run a little bit diagonally sideways to having large families, right? But imagine you walked into a room and people say, well, what do you do? And you say, well, I'm a parent, a mom or a dad of four kids or six kids or whatever. That gave you status in that room. Like, oh, wow, you are a great person. We should honor you. We all want to be like you. But that's not what our Babylon teaches us. Our Babylon reserves those kind of accolades for a person who went to Ivy League school and got a master's or has a great career and has maybe got a great title at work. They're CEO or CFO or they're trying to get to that someday. I mean, it's so true. Like if you're going to a dinner party and you were just going around meeting people and you had the choice to sit next to the Ivy League educated CEO or the mom of six kids, who do you sit next to? Who do you think you're going to have a more interesting conversation with? And of course, we're all going to answer that somewhat differently, but I think you just brought up a really great point. If you tell someone you have four kids, I have lots of friends who have four kids, I've seen the reaction. It's wide-eyed. Like, people stare at you like, what kind of freak are you? Did you have four accidents? I mean, how does that even happen? <laughs> you know, did you snip it? It just didn't work? I mean, someone please explain to me how this happened, right? And so that's how our culture thinks about this. And I know from parents who have four plus kids, it's hard for them because people don't want them into their homes. Thankfully, I have a number of friends like this, and we love having them into our homes. But, you know, four kids is more rambunctious than two kids. And so they're often kind of put onto the outskirts of society, and so they aren't honored. I just think that's really interesting. Babylon has shaped our values in a fascinating way there. So that's one way. Workism is shaping us. We are identified with and by our our work. I think another dimension that's shaping us in Babylon is self-expression. It's this notion that to be a happy person, I need to do what feels true to me. I need to express myself. I need to be free to make wealth, to be successful, to be whoever I want. And children are viewed as an obstruction to that, right? It kind of goes with the workism thing. If I have lots of kids, I maybe can't be as successful as I want to be. But rather than me explaining it, let's listen to this three-minute long clip from Seth Rogen, where he talks very frankly about why him and his wife have chosen not to have kids. And I think he summarizes how Babylon thinks about children. Just so you know, he's being interviewed by Kelly Clarkson on her TV show. So let's listen to that now. Looking to the future years, um, you've been open about not wanting kids. So is this yes. still a thing? Okay, I, I, you I, still said do, yes. I still don't want kids, yeah. Uh, why? Why? Like you just never saw yourself as dad, you just like your time. It doesn't seem that fun. <laughs> I can see how it seems that way. Yeah. It really does not, it doesn't seem fun. And most of my friends who are parents, God bless them, spend a lot of their time talking about how much they don't like having kids. Uh, And what me and my wife spend a lot of time talking about is how much fun stuff we can do because we don't have kids. I think that that's actually pretty rad though, because I never never wanted kids like whenever, before I met my ex, and then he had kids, and I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. I was like, and I got to kind of experience it. Yeah, that seems like a good version of it. So then I ended up having kids because I, then they're so, I I wouldn't say it's like, the most fun job because no. it's like overwhelming, yeah. but it's a beautiful thing and it's like nothing cooler <laughs> for me. But I will say though, I think it's important because people always used to pressure me about it, yeah. about marriage and about having kids. And like, it's like not everybody, that's not everybody's dream is to no. do that. And yeah. a lot of people, I just I think, think it's important you say that. Yeah, a lot of people have kids and they don't even think about it. I know, but they Oh my God, we call those kids. people yeah. that have accessories. Yeah, and, yeah, <laughs> or they just think that's the next thing you do in life. I you know, have kids. That's what and I'm then they look back and they were like, I didn't have to have kids. No, my, yeah. my <laughs> friend was like, that's a person has a kid as an accessory. And I'm like, that's yeah. not, that's a lot of therapy in the waiting. Um, but anyway. Yeah. But you don't need kids. There's so many kids. I know. And that's the thing, too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Who looks at all the kids out there and thinks, I wish there were more kids? I guess anybody that wants kids. Yeah, not me. I think that's cool. And your wife is the same way, right? She does not want kids. No. We get a lot of, I don't know. 
I know pe people describe having kids, yeah, as like brief glimmering moments of beauty amongst a sea of pain. <laughs> it, it kind of, whereas not having kids is just, it's just lovely all the time. And there's, there's, there's none of that. It's just great all day. I'm never like, I wish I had kids and I'm yeah. missing something by not having them. I more am doing stuff all the time where I look over at my wife and she looks at me and we're like, if we had kids, we couldn't do this. Yeah. This wouldn't even remotely be on the table. No, that's why. We couldn't why do any of this stuff if we had kids. People with kids, that's yeah. what we call me time. So oh, yeah. we have to carve it out. All yeah. the time is me. Why would I, who, why would I, why wouldn't it be me time? Who, what? No, it's think, us time. But me and my, we do it together. We I think that's, together. I think yeah. that's really awesome. And I think it's so cool yeah. to not pressure people and enjoy no, I your think life. Should be yeah. more voices of the, that you Reason? don't need to have kids. Yeah, you don't need to have kids. Also, like, won't the world not be here in 30 years? So. <laughs> Are we all going to die? <laughs> oh my God. Well, I do love my children. They seem great. <laughs> They're great. <laughs> they seem lovely. I'll call you for babies. Exactly. <laughs> you and your wife would love it. We okay. Yeah, we hang out. I love I love my friends' children. Probably no, more is, than they do, it seems. It some is, of the time. <laughs> <laughs> you get to play with them hand yeah. back. It's the best. It's like a grandparent exactly. or an aunt or an uncle. Okay, yeah. now let's listen to one other interview you did. This one's much shorter, but I think it kind of rounds out what he was communicating. Who's this one with? This one is with a YouTube channel called The Diary of a CEO. So here we go. You referenced earlier you don't have any kids. I do not. That has helped me succeed as well. <laughs> Definitely. Really? Oh, yeah. There's a whole huge thing I'm not doing which is raising children. <laughs> <laughs> People, obviously, someone will be listening, yeah, but it would make you happier. You know, someone might say that. I'm trying to rebuttal. I don't think it would. Some people want kids. Some people don't want kids. I think a lot of people have kids before they even think about it. From what I've seen, honestly, you just are told, you go through life, you get married, you have kids. It's what happens. And me and my wife were just, neither of us were like that, you know? And honestly, the older we get, the more happy and reaffirmed we are with our choice to not have kids. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. So many different layers. But let's start with this. I find it interesting that at the very beginning, the entire conversation centers around fun and me time and me being able to do what I want to do. This is self-expressive individualism. The best way for me to be happy in life is to prioritize me above everything else. Now, we could do a whole different episode on whether that's right. It turns out it's actually really not right <laughs> at all. But that's the framing device for why he's chosen not to have kids. Well, remember we're talking about how Babylon, our culture, has shaped our thinking about this specific topic. And you heard several things he said in there that show the culture's influence on him. He's more successful because he doesn't have to take care of kids and have all the responsibilities of it. So he's been able to do more in his job. And he's obviously very successful in what he does. So if you prioritize career success, and if you prioritize living for yourself in the moment, then I think it's kind of unarguable that kids are going to get in the way of that. I'm so tempted to go down the road of, I just think that makes for an utterly miserable life. But let's just go back and think about some of the polling statistics you referred to earlier. That seems to be what we're prioritizing, right? Success and fun. And you can see how the culture's values and the culture's pursuit of those things has shaped his decisions. And it's shaping your decisions. It's shaping your friend's decisions, whether you express it like Seth Rogen did or not. The other interesting thing that they brought up was, and I think he's right, we said, all of my friends who have kids, all they do is complain about it. 
He said, it's like glimmering moments of happiness amidst a sea of pain. That's how he said his friends describe parenting. I think that shows how Babylon has discipled us. Because even when I hear that, I feel convicted. Because it is really easy for me to see my kids as an obstruction to my happiness or as a problem that needs to be solved. And the reality is, that's the way Babylon has trained me to think about children because Babylon wants me to focus on myself. And so I think there's a lot of Christians, myself included, who have children who should be convicted by what he said because you and me sound exactly like those kinds of people. You're taking us back to what is the goal of my life? What is it I should want out of my life? What is it really brings me happiness and joy and meaning? Is it changing a diaper? Is it solving a squabble between siblings? Is it bath time? Is it having to find a babysitter before we can go do something? Is it all the cost? Are those the inconveniences? Well, those are inconveniences if you want to live for yourself. But it turns out that living for yourself ends up in a life of loneliness and misery. Not immediately, but over time. It does. So if you want a meaningful life, if you want a life that brings a deeper kind of joy and happiness, then Jesus says that's a life that comes through service and sacrifice. And we're all about that when, you know, let's feed the poor, let's solve all these, you know, world hunger problems. But no, you know where that life of service and sacrifice starts? It starts in your home with your children. So changing that diaper and solving the squabble, the spat between siblings is part of you raising up a generation, discipling someone, helping helping them learn the right kind of values and the right kind of habits that'll make them a productive citizen. That provides meaning in our life. When we separate ourselves from that family dynamic, then no wonder we have people wandering around without meaning and purpose, lonely and anxious, depressed, trying to figure out what life's about because we've cut ourselves off from one of the places that God designed to give us meaning, and that is in raising a family. You know, I love to do my life backwards. And so I think about my funeral or my gravestone. And what I don't want on my gravestone was he had a lot of fun. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> right. It's like, on one level, I want to have fun. I enjoy having fun, right? But I don't want that to be the chief end of my life. That sounds like a really thin, hollow life. I don't want to get to my funeral, which I guess I'm not really seeing, but just to imagine it, get to my funeral and look around and see that the only people I've impacted are maybe myself or my spouse or just a few friends. I want to be able to look at generations of people that have been impacted by my love. Now, of course, having kids doesn't mean you're going to have generational impact because you could be a terrible parent. And by the way, <laughs> not having kids doesn't mean you can't have generational impact. We'll get into this in just a moment, because if you're a Christian and you're a part of the family of God, you can have spiritual children. And so anybody can have generational impact if they take a parenting attitude in their life. But it seems like the heart here is, I want to have fun. I want to be successful. I want to be wealthy. That is the chief end. And if that's on my tombstone, I'm going to think, what a waste of life. Isn't it Mark Sayers? You've talked to him before, but isn't it him that says that meaning and freedom are in odds with one another. In other words, the more freedom you have, the less meaning. And I think that comes true in this moment. If what you're looking for is freedom, then you can get that. That's the freedom to have fun and all that. But it's going to leave you with a less meaningful life. And that applies outside of children. If this is how Babylon is shaping us, right? We've looked at the data. We've seen that we have decreasing rates of marriage and decreasing levels of fertility. And we've seen that there are psychological and mental health consequences to that. We've seen that there's consequences in terms of our GDP and how healthy we are as a nation. There's all of these things, but those aren't reasons to resist Babylon. I think the deepest reason to resist Babylon is because Jesus has a higher, better, more beautiful calling for us. And so I want to go there and say, what's a kingdom vision for family and for children that can encompass all of us, whether or not we're parents? 
One of the things that we haven't said yet is that religious communities have more children. You can look at that in Orthodox Jewish communities. You can look at that in Muslim communities. You can look at that in Christian communities. The more religious you are, we're not talking about what religion is, Mormon communities, that you will have more children. And the idea usually is that we have a declining birth rate because religion is declining. We've talked in the past about the rise of the nuns and all that. But Mary Eberstadt, who's a brilliant thinker that I've been reading lately, she argues that it might just be the other way around. It might be that as our family structure declines and we have less children, less people are married, all that, that that is leading to the loss of religion. And she has this great line where she says, just like you've heard, there are no atheists in foxholes. So there are no atheists in the nursery. Of course, she's not saying that there are literally no atheists that have children, but she's saying that when you have experienced childbirth, either yourself because you're a woman, a mom, or a husband and a father, you've watched it all happen, that there's just something so amazing and miraculous about it that it draws you to faith. There's a guy named Whitaker Chambers who is famous for a book called Witness. He talks about his story of leaving communism and becoming a Christian. And he says a big moment in him becoming a Christian was sitting with his daughter when she was really, really young. I think he's feeding her in her high chair or something. And he's just looking at her ear and he's just so amazed by it. He goes, okay, there has to be a God. There has to be more to life. Or we are pastors of a church and you see people coming to church with their kids. Why? Like people who've been away from church, never went to church, don't think of themselves as particularly religious, but now they've had children and they have this sense that I've got to morally form these children. And they're coming to this church because there's a community of people that will help them morally form their kids. So it works both ways. Religion, commitment to a religious worldview, promotes childbirth. But having kids also promotes wanting to be a part of a religious community. I think that's true. And I think part of it too is simply that self-sacrifice expands us. The fear in all acts of sacrificial love is that I'll lose myself if I sacrifice myself. And the truth that Jesus taught us is that if a seed falls into the ground and dies, that's where new life comes from. And so if you take the Seth Rogen approach, you will not be expanded by selfishness. Your focus will be narrowly on your own life. But I do think having kids, because there are many self-sacrificial moments, it causes you to expand, to ask bigger questions, to think intergenerationally in a way that draws you, I think, toward God. So let's get into the Bible. What I want to do specifically is start with singleness. Because I think a lot of times in this conversation, it's easy, and I'm sure someone's already heard us say something that they've taken away saying, oh, see, you guys are just like those Christians who say that the pinnacle of Christian life is having a family and that you need to have a family if you want to be a serious Christian. And all I can say is that is really, really ridiculous for two big reasons, Jesus and Paul, okay? Obviously, Jesus and Paul, they were never married, and they actually spoke about these issues. Paul specifically in 1 Corinthians 7 said that singleness was a high calling and that it was a gift from God. And he called people to take the gift if they've received the gift from God. And he said the reason why was because he wanted to spare them from, quote, worldly troubles. And if you've been married, you could talk about the worldly troubles that come with being married and having kids. You are going to be more focused on what's happening there. And he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And now here's what I want to say about all this. Paul thinks that singleness is a high cost not because he wants people to self-express. It's not, hey, don't get married and go be a self-expressive individual who goes on your amazing journey and focuses and cares for yourself all the time. He says the reason why it's better to be single is because you are able to focus on the things of the Lord, kingdom things, with greater attention and with greater fervor than a married person can. That's why he calls it a gift, and that's why he calls it a higher calling. 
And if you are as a single person or a married person focused on the things of God's kingdom, then there's a chance to have spiritual children. So, you know, if you just think about the disciples who are sent out in the Great Commission to go and make disciples of the nations, what they're being told is to go and have spiritual children reproduce themselves spiritually in other people's lives. Yeah, people don't always realize that the Great Commission is riffing on Genesis 1. So in Genesis 1, God makes humanity in his image, and he commands all of the humans, male and female, to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth and fill it. Okay, can we just stop there for a second and just say that's the first command to humanity and all the Bible? Be fruitful and multiply. That's what I like to ask people. Like, what's the first command God ever gives to people? And it is to be fruitful and multiply. So I know you want to make another point about that, and you can do that, but I just want to stop and say, huh, God has told all human beings that this is part of what they are designed to do is to multiply their life by having children. Yeah, so clearly in Genesis 1, it's talking about physically having children. That is clearly the focal point. But when we get to the time of Jesus and Paul, they also have a spiritual dimension behind that. And Jesus is riffing on this call to be fruitful and multiply when he calls his disciples to go and make disciples. He's saying, you can fulfill, even as a single person, you can fulfill Genesis 1 by having spiritual children. Paul did this. He calls Timothy his son, right? He has spiritual children. And the language of fruitfulness, well, of course, Paul picks that up in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. So it's go forth, multiply disciples, and make them fruitful in holiness and righteousness. And this is an even higher calling than being a married person. This is a gift from the Lord to be focused on the things of the Lord. And I think that's really beautiful, right? Because whether it's that you're single or maybe you're a married couple, but you're struggling with infertility and you can't have kids, it's easy to hear a conversation like this and walk away and think, I'm less than. And I think we actually need to invert it. One of the points is that if you aren't distracted by marriage or if you aren't distracted by kids, you have more time, more energy to make disciples to have spiritual children, to have an intergenerational legacy through those people. And so in Genesis 1, like you said, it says, be fruitful and multiply. And that, in some sense, is unique in ancient Near East documents. I mean, everyone was having children then, and it's not as if some religions were against children. I mean, sex and children went together. It's that the Hebrew scriptures really valued children. So you find something like in Psalm 127 that says, children are a heritage from the Lord, a reward from him. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. So the person who has a full quiver, Quiver, which is a weird way of saying it, like little arrows. I don't know. I mean, there's probably something to that metaphor that you can shoot them out into the world to do good and to build God's kingdom. But that person is blessed. So I always ask people, do you want to be blessed by God? Are there any blessings from God you'd turn down? Well, no. I mean, I always want God's blessing. Well, here's one of the ways God wants to bless you is he wants you to be married and have children. Oh, well, I don't want to have too many blessings. Right. I only want to have <laughs> one blessing or no blessings or two blessings or, well, no, that's not the way it works. Right. I mean, it just shows how we've been shaped by Babylon that we consider what a blessing. God calls it a blessing. We call it a burden. All right. We didn't get that from God. We didn't get that from the biblical worldview. I think that's really true. And that goes back to my point about myself and fellow Christians who love to complain about our kids. No, your kids are a heritage, a blessing, a reward. Those are the words that the psalmist used. If I saw my kids more and more that way, not only would I probably be a better father, but I would be far more grateful and thankful for the gift and the blessing of being a parent. Well, and just think how opposite of Seth Rogen's whole yes. mantra that runs, right? I mean, he thinks of them as something that gets in the way. The Bible says, no, they're a blessing. 
I want to go back to Genesis 1, right? Because this is God's original command. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. But by Genesis 11, this is after the fall, humanity has gathered up into one place to build what you've probably heard called the Tower of Babel. But in Hebrew, it's literally the Tower of Babylon. They're building Babylon, this giant ziggurat temple thing in the middle of it. And the way the author writes a story, he's making it clear that these people building the Tower of Babylon, they were breaking God's very first command. They were not filling the earth. They were staying in one place. They weren't spreading out. And so that's how Babylon shapes you. It tells you, don't listen to those first commands. God doesn't know what he's doing when he designed you. Now, these days, I don't think we're as tempted to stay in one place. In fact, maybe we have the opposite problem of going around a little bit too much. But isn't it interesting that in our own day, our own Babylon is making us question God's command to be fruitful and multiply, the command to have children, the very, very first thing that he says. Now, again, I'm just going to keep putting caveats. This doesn't mean that there's not a calling for singleness. This doesn't mean that if you're struggling with infertility that you're doing something wrong or that God has cursed you. The Bible expands on these and explains these things. But normally, because we're talking in trends, normally the call is to be fruitful and multiply if you're married. And if you're not doing that, if you're making an active choice not to, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the married couple who's actively saying, I do not want to have kids. That is maybe buying into Babylon. It's building a new tower of Babylon on childlessness. And I'm going to even be a little more controversial, Patrick, and that is to say that, and this gets hard, so I just want to admit it up front, of how many kids you're having. Assuming all the caveats about health and a person's personal situation, is just, am I open to having more blessings from God? Or have I got a lifestyle that I want? Motive is all the issue here, right? Do I have a lifestyle that I want that only allows me to have a small number of children because otherwise it'll get in my way? So there's good reasons to have smaller families and bigger families, really good reasons. It comes down to motive about why you're doing it. I've only got two kids, so we're on the... I don't even know statistically the lower end of having children. I don't know what the proper range is, but we have two kids. And even, you know, putting these notes together and every time we talk about this, I find myself feeling a sense of conviction. Did we make that choice for all the right reasons? And the answer is probably no. There was some selfishness. There was some Seth Roganism happening inside of my heart that was driving some of those decisions. And likewise, by the way, I find myself thinking through even things like birth control. I mean, when you're talking about using technology or surgery or, you know, objects to prevent pregnancy, there is a sense in which we're technologically which is what Babylon and Babel was all about, the technology of the brick. We're technologically reversing our ability to have kids. And this is a whole Catholic thing because Catholics won't use birth control. I want to wrestle with it, right? We chose to use birth control. That's where we're at. But I still think, man, there's something here that I've probably imbibed too much of Babylon. Man, there's a lot of too much information going on here. I don't need to know about your birth control choices, but thank you for sharing all that. I'm no, sorry. <laughs> here's the, it really comes down to motive because you could have a big family and have that for wrong motives too, right? So there's a way for our motives to screw up all of this. And Christine and I have four kids and I kind of wanted a fifth kid and I regret not having that. And I'm not sure that I did the right thing there. So this isn't about a certain number. It's just about where your heart is. And I think the birth control is a really hard conversation to have because, you know, I mean, there's probably good reasons to use it, but I love the idea that just because technology is available doesn't mean I should use it. We're in the midst of child rearing and somebody asked me to fill out a form 
forum. It was like, what's the greatest invention ever? And I said, it was the pill. Now that was to go on our church website. Like, a, you know, back when churches had websites that you have questions and answers yeah, with a yeah, pastor. Yeah. And they said, I couldn't put on there, but I had four kids and they're seven years apart from oldest to youngest. And we were just busy. And I thought the pill is great because my wife turns out to be very fertile. So therefore, I guess my point is that a lot of this just comes down to heart and motive. And you're the only person who knows your heart. So no judgment here from us. I think what we're pressing towards is there's going to be some people who think even questioning birth control is offensive. And I just have to say, well, read Genesis. I, we used it, right? And I'm not saying yeah, I'm against same it. here. I'm just saying, hey, it's something that you ought to wrestle with. Because if the foundational command is to be fruitful and multiply, then I need to wrestle with the question of, is it really okay for me not to have kids? Am I having the right amount of kids? Does God want me to have more? Because of the Babylon we live in, we have to wrestle through those kinds of questions. We live in a different Babylon. Maybe they would be very different questions, but those are the ones that we need to wrestle with. Another major reason is because in the Old Testament in particular, the family is the normative space for discipleship. So that whole thing about how you can have spiritual children, well, in the Old Testament, those things really weren't too separated from one another. Your physical children were also called to be your spiritual children. And throughout the Old Testament, we see a theme of God's people being called to disciple their children. This is where you make followers of Yahweh. Remember I said earlier that Mary Eberstadt had said there's no atheists in nurseries. One of the things that drives religious faith is people having children. And that's part of what a pastor experiences in a church is that young families come to church or back to church because they have the sense that I need to morally form my kids. And I think that's part of God's design and what God does in parents is he puts that burden in their heart and they have this responsibility and that drives them to church. But you see that and say Deuteronomy 6, where God says that the parents are to impress his laws upon their children. And we see that in Deuteronomy 6, here's verse 20. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and the laws from the Lord our God has commanded you, tell him, and then it tells the story about how they came out of slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh and all that. But that whole thing of when your son asks you, because everybody who's that kid is going to have their kid ask them questions that they don't know the answer to, or ask them questions that are really important and deep and meaningful. And if you don't have faith, what do you say to them in that moment? And so the Bible equips parents, parents, not churches, parents, to be the primary place where their kids get answers to those kinds of questions. And that's what drives parents to church, you know, to partner with churches and families so that they can shepherd those kids down the right path. I mean, it's so true. Every parent has had that question from their kid about God, about evil, about something you didn't know how to answer. And if you're anything like me, that only drove me closer to God. Because in that moment, I'm thinking, I don't have an adequate answer for this question. You know, God be with me. God help me. And sometimes I need to go research and learn so that I can be a better parent and disciple my kids. It's like reverse mentoring. So, so the discipleship <laughs> goes both ways, right? It does. Because the other thing that you get in Deuteronomy 6 is the calling for parents to put the laws on the doors and wear them as clothing and to impress those laws upon their their children. And specifically, it says to give your child a heart for God, right? It's not just teach them how to walk with God. And that's why some people come to church is they want law. But the real thing that transforms you and transforms your children and transforms your house is the love of God, God's grace coming into your life and into your family to transform you from the inside out. And Deuteronomy 6, it has it built in right there. That's how discipleship works. 
Yeah, and I hope this doesn't sound self-righteous or judgmental, but we're recording this a few days before Good Friday, and so our kids will be sitting with me in a row at church, and we'll be worshiping together on Good Friday and Easter morning, and Seth Rogen can have his vacations, and Seth Rogen can have his fun stuff that he wants to go do. Knock yourself out, go do it. I wouldn't trade any of that for the opportunity to sit with your family in church and worship together. That's just far more meaningful. It's not as fun. I mean, I've got to do some of the fun things Seth Rogen's talking about. <laughs> it's not as fun, yeah. but it is meaningful. Like you said, you don't want on your tombstone fun. You want on your tombstone that you led a meaningful life that mattered in other people's lives. Yeah. So again, Babylon has a vision for children. What's the kingdom vision for children? Well, it incorporates the universal human calling to be fruitful and multiply, right? And that can be spiritual, but it can also be physical. And if you are married, it seems like there is a specific calling upon you to have kids. If you are married, it should be physical. But the family is also in a kingdom mindset. It's the place of discipleship. The book of Proverbs is framed around a father teaching his son how to be wise. 36 different times we see the father training his son in wisdom in the book of Proverbs. And this theme continues all the way up to the New Testament. Now, what I appreciate about the New Testament is that Jesus, he does give us some asterisks, right? One of the things he warns us is that if family becomes an ultimate thing in your life, the highest good, the pinnacle good, which in some Christian circles, it can become that, he really challenges that. He says, no, that's not how we do it here. You might even remember the story where Jesus' family thinks he's gone off his rocker, right? They think he's crazy. And so they come to try to get him as these crowd surrounds him and he's teaching them. And somebody says, hey, Jesus, your family's here. And he says, well, my family is those who do the will of God. In other words, he prioritizes the church, the people doing the will of God, his spiritual community over his family. And you're right. A lot of people, probably me, need to hear that warning that it's possible to pray your family too much and to be too devoted to them. And we see that in our Babylon culture, the way we've been shaped when parents, man, people are going to hate me for this, but here we go. Go listen to the Lenore Skenazi episode. <laughs> when parents prioritize their kids' sports on Sunday over worship, when parents are too busy taking their kids to a thousand things that they can't be in a small group or don't have time for personal devotions, or whatever it is for you that you grow spiritually, you know, that might be prioritizing your family over your faith. I think that's a good word for young families that are trying to figure out how much we're going to be involved with sports. It's a choice Emily and I have made together is we're limiting the amount that our kids can be involved because we care about their spiritual life and we want to make sure that's a priority. Our family and the things we do together isn't going to come first. But that said, Jesus also does really care about family. When he's on the cross, I mean, this is remarkable. He is bearing the wrath of God and he looks down and he sees his mom, Mary, and his dad had died. And what does he do? He takes care of her. He looks at his disciple, John, and says, she's now your mom. <laughs> you take care of her the same way you take care of your mom, which shows that Jesus still values family. One other example that people don't often talk about is James and Jude, Jesus's half-brothers. They became significant leaders inside of the church. And that says that discipleship was happening inside of Jesus's house. That Deuteronomy 6 thing we were talking about, it sounds like Mary and Joseph really did it. It was the normative place for discipleship, even in Jesus's life. I've always found it interesting in the book of Acts when Paul and Peter and the you know disciples are out preaching that what happens quite a bit is that whole households come to believe in Christ together. It's kind of hard for us to imagine as individualists, right? We would think it'd be one by one by one by one by one. 
Uh, yeah, that's how it operates today. But they're in a more of a collective, family-oriented society. When mom and dad came to believe something, the whole household kind of joined in and believed it too. They all kind of got baptized at that time. Now, you know, it's hard to know a person's heart. Did they all really come to a genuine saving faith at that moment? Well, I don't know. But they, I mean, in Cornelius's case, they're all speaking in time. I mean, multiple cases, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And so you have to think there's something real. <laughs> and they're all identifying with the church and, and growing into whatever faith they ended up having, but clearly households and their household faith was really important. And so what we saw back in Deuteronomy of the family's responsibility to disciple kids continues in Paul's instruction, say in Ephesians 6, where he tells parents how to train up their children. And he's really careful, you know, like children should obey their parents, but parents shouldn't exasperate their children. So there's responsibilities to instruct and discipline, but to be careful about how you do it. Yeah, another example of this. One reason we value the church is because the authors of the New Testament had a bad habit of writing to churches. <laughs> so, so that's just one way to know you should care about churches. Gosh, we kept writing to them because the church is one of the places where discipleship takes place, where Jesus' kingdom is coming on earth as in heaven. And isn't it interesting that in Paul's letters, 12 different times he addresses households. He has specific words for households, which again suggests not just their legitimacy, but that they are a place of discipleship. Now, I know some people are going to push back on us because if you know anything, about Roman households, it always included the nuclear family. There were sometimes extended relatives, multi-generational family members, and sometimes even slaves or freed slaves that were all a part of the household. But the principle still really applies here because the heart of the household was the mother and father who were having children and discipling and raising up those children. And I think it stands in contrast to the way the Roman culture saw children because they saw children much like the ancient Near East people saw as an inconvenience and a burden. So in Roman culture, it was common for a child to be set at the feet of the father and the father could either pick that child up, a way of saying we embrace you and bring you in our family or could turn and walk away from it and that child would be thrown into a dump. And the Christians would come and they would rescue children off the dump, off the trash heap, take them into their family. Now, oftentimes that's talked about in a context of abortion or infanticide and how Christians should care about the vulnerable, and that's all appropriate to talk about it. But it's also appropriate to say that Christians cherished children and saw them as a blessing from God because they saw themselves as part of that Hebrew scriptures, the story of Israel that said that children are your reward and that we should go be fruitful and multiply and we should give wisdom and pass on our wisdom to our children. So whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, what you see is Christians acting counterculturally in order to embrace kids. Yeah, I mean, that's wild. They didn't see the child that had been rejected, often because of you know physical malformities. They didn't see that child as a burden. They saw that child as a blessing to be discipled and cared for. And let's press further into Roman culture. The head of the household, the paterfamilias, if you want to use the uh, <laughs> private school term. I'm going to cut you off before you say it, okay? The paterfamilias, everybody lived to serve him, the patriarch of the family. And in the Christian household, things are radically different. The paterfamilias is called to lay down his life for his wife, to sanctify her, to put her needs first. But it's not just there. He's also called to treat his children with dignity and respect and train them. So check this out. Ephesians 6, this is crazy. A child should be subservient to the father, and the paterfamilia should have no care for how the child is treated. That's not going to be a priority, I should say, for him. But check this out. Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life in the land. This would have been, I think, relatively uncontroversial in the Roman world. But let's get to the next part. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. 
Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. A dad is given a responsibility that normally a patriarch wouldn't have. He is now a trainer, a instructor, a developer, a discipler of his children, who's called to do so not with an iron fist, because that would exasperate a child. He's called to do so with love and grace. This is countercultural stuff. Sometimes people point out that in the New Testament, there's no command to have children. And that's surely true. And there's for sure is no command to have a certain number of children. The Bible doesn't give us some number that we have to reach in order to attain but some spiritual maturity. But if it did, it would, be, it would be seven, right? <laughs> seven. There you go. I like it. But what the Bible does encourage is sex only inside of marriage. It encourages people to be married. And then it encourages married people to have a sexual relationship with one another. Now, mutual and respectful and all that, of course. But think about it. In the first century, or really for the vast majority of human civilization, to have sex inside of a marriage, which is what the New Testament is encouraging, is to have kids. So there doesn't need to be some sort of command. Now, in the age of birth control, there would be be a need, right? Because you could have sex through technology, not have children, but you can't have that then. So there's no need for that command. So we have to understand that context here, cultural context is really important. And if you're looking for this command, you're looking for something that is just silly in that worldview. I've not met a Christian who says, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say anything about iPhone. So I guess that doesn't matter how I use my phone. (laughs) Right. Well, that's silliness. We understand the Bible couldn't say anything about iPhones because iPhones didn't exist. Birth control did not exist until, you know, a blink ago in human history, the 1960s. It is a very, very new technology. And so when Paul is calling married couples not to withhold sex from each other, there is an implicit idea that if you're having sex and there's no such thing as a pill, you're going to end up having children. You don't have to command people to procreate if you already have procreation built into sex. The problem is we've separated sex from procreation, so we want the explicit command, but it's just not going to be there. I think the explicit command, or as explicit as we get, is Genesis. Genesis 127, be fruitful and multiply. Which is okay because Paul was steeped in the Hebrew scriptures. It would have never occurred to Paul that there was something called the New Testament. In his life, there was no New Testament, right? They were just writing the scripture down that was part of the story of Israel. And so he thought Genesis 1 and Psalm 127 and all those other verses applied to the people he was writing to. Okay, so big picture context. Babylon is giving us a vision about children. And it's putting self-expression and work at the center of our identity and our values. And the kingdom gives us a very different way of being in the world. It says that there is an innate blessing and goodness in having children. And both spiritual and physical children having children. And that the family, both physical and spiritual, is called to be the context where we disciple people in the way of Jesus and help people love God and know him deeply. And that this is a meaningful calling. It's not always fun. It's not always easy, but it's a beautiful, lovely calling. And that's what I want to walk away with. Like someone say, why did you feel the need to say anything like this? And if that's you and you're starting to feel attacked, like, oh, because I don't have kids or X, Y, Z, I feel attacked. That's not the point. My heart is in particular to change the heart of Christian parents who have kids and are negative about it say, no, you've got a blessing. And this is for me just as much as for them. It's also for young Christian married couples who have drank the Babylon Kool-Aid and are saying, ah, I don't really want to have kids. It's not that big of a deal. Well, it might be a really, really big deal to God, and it might be a part of your calling. And that's why we're doing this episode, not to create guilt, not to cause someone to feel frustrated if they're single or if they're struggling with infertility. The Bible has different things to say in those situations. Just broadly, we want to have a kingdom vision of having children. Okay, so I agree with all that, and that's the most important thing. And 
Amen. Hallelujah. But can I just add one thing that's not nearly as meaningful, but nonetheless, we're seeing these cultural and economic shifts and our society's trying to figure out, well, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that we have rejected God's view of human beings, rejected God's view of family, sex, procreation, kids, all that. So no wonder we're experiencing these problems. So what I hope is that by rethinking our attitudes toward children, it will lead us back into a deeper relationship with God. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.